good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you to our fifth and final week of, of this focus series uh, that we've been talking about. And I hope, my desire for each and every one of us is that we've communicated very clearly um, to each and every one of us that it's our desire as leadership here at Bettendorf Christian Church uh, to make the main thing the main thing, to put first things first and that we put our main focus the very focus of our life on Jesus. Not only our personal lives, but also as a church body as we move forward from this day on. Over the first four weeks of this series, we've taken a very serious and in-depth look at the Great Commission that we read about in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And as we come to this scripture, Jesus has already died for our sins, He's already risen from the dead as the Lord of the universe. He now aims to give his disciples one last command, one last commission for what they are to do while he is gone. As he is about to return to the Father in heaven until he comes again, as 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 9 puts it, with flaming fire and judgment and salvation. So let's look once again. Let's just take another close look in-depth look at the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very ends of the earth. By looking at this command, we see three things. We see that Jesus has called his followers to make disciples, to evangelize those around us who do not know the Lord as their Savior. This is something that is done through both our words and our actions. So have you been able to do that over these last several weeks? Have you shared Jesus with those in your life who do not know him? Your family members and your friends your coworkers, your neighbors. If you're still in school, maybe your classmates. Listen, if you have, awesome. I want to encourage you to keep up the good work of sharing the good news of Jesus to those around you. But if not, let's just be an encouragement to get started. Today can be the day that, that you start being obedient to Jesus and his command to make disciples. We're also called to baptize those who receive Christ. We see that baptism is a part of this very command, and we've looked at that, to make disciples and baptize them, it says. Now, the baptizing instruction, it focuses on how one basically becomes a disciple. The things that we receive through baptism and the profession of our faith that we're making through it. It's been so amazing over these past couple weeks to actually have the opportunity to see baptism um, here in our service, but there's been a few that have come in through the week as well, and we're up to 16 people in the last two weeks who've been obedient in their decision to follow Christ. And what's exciting is next week, we're going to celebrate that. We're going to have a baptism celebration service where we're going to have a chance to see everybody, but we also have several more who have signed up to be a part of that service as well. And yeah, it's, it's something to clap about. And I want, I want to encourage you, if that's something that you feel like God has been putting on your heart, 
to be obedient in Christian baptism, you can get signed up in a number of ways. First and foremost, you can just talk to me or email me. You can also sign up through our website and through the weekly new email that goes out on Wednesdays that Evan was telling us about. The thing is, we can't be obedient to the things in, in Christ's life, you know, life and what he's asked us to do if, if we're not doing these things. And so the last thing that we see here is what we talked about last Sunday, and we talked about what it means to disciple other people, to teach them to observe and to obey the commands of Christ. The teaching instruction focuses really on how each and every one of us grow as disciples. We're called to mature in our faith, to move from a spiritual infancy to a spiritual maturity. We can do this by being prepared to teach, by being here at church and listening to the word of God preached on a regular basis, by faithfully getting into God's word and reading our Bibles and knowing the truth of what it says. By spending time in prayer and by serving others with glad and sincere hearts. By being obedient to God's commands in our own lives through our example. We cannot teach others to do the things that we are not doing ourselves. You know, probably the best part about being, uh, or, or, or the best part about the Great Commission, I should say, is that any Christian can do it. You don't have to be somebody that has excessive skill or special abilities to be able to make disciples. You don't have to be a successful pastor or a charismatic leader to make disciples. You don't have to be a great communicator or innovative thinker to make disciples. And that's why Jesus says every Christian can and must do this. So if this is our command to go to go and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach everyone, to not only teach them, but to teach them to obey everything that Christ has commanded us. Really, our question this morning becomes this. Why are so many people who profess to be Christians not being obedient to this command? Why are so many people not making disciples? And so ask yourself that very question yourself. Are you, are you personally doing what Christ has asked us to do? Tim McKnight, who's an assistant professor of both missions and student ministry at Anderson University, someone who's been in ministry for over 27 years and has experience in this, he wrote an article entitled, Five Reasons Why We Don't Make Disciples. In it, he said, when one examines the decline in conversions within the church, it is apparent that we are not being obedient to the command, make disciples in the Great Commission. He then offers five major reasons, obviously, why people are not making disciples. The first reason, he says, is that many of us don't love God. And I think that's kind of one of those ouch statements, that we don't love God. Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's not implying that we live a life of perfection, and, but I think he's referring to the fact that each and every one of us need to look at the overall posture or the trajectory of our lives. Where are we heading? What are we doing for Jesus? When we do this, we turn from loving ourselves to loving Christ, we turn from loving our sin, and I want to include here sins of omission, to loving Christ. If we encounter someone who repeats,
repeatedly sins in a particular area, if that person never repents of their sin, we would say that that individual does not show evidence of repentance and probably is not a true disciple or true follower of Jesus. However, the willful refusal to make disciples is a sin of omission against Christ. Can we claim to love and follow Jesus and yet willfully disobey his command to make disciples? In light of John 14, 15, where Jesus again says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we love God, part of that love is making disciples. The second reason that we don't make disciples, he says, is that we don't love people. Paraphrasing all that's said in 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 20, Paul states that the love of Christ compels him to share the gospel of reconciliation as an ambassador of Christ. To love, he says, this love refers to both his love for Jesus and his love for people who yet do not know who Christ is. If you remember when Jesus encountered the leper, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, his love moves him into action. It moves him to touch and to heal this leper. When Jesus shares the story of, of the, um, I'm sorry, the, the Good Samaritan and the Good Samaritan's love, it says it's the Good Samaritan's love that compels him to help this man who has been beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. So, us too, can we, can we love our neighbor and not share the gospel with him or with her? Can we say that we love people and not seek to lead them to Jesus? If we love people, we will make disciples. Love God, love people. The third reason he says we don't make disciples is that we don't think that the gospel message is essential for salvation. Now, a recent poll stated that 92% of evangelicals believe that people are saved only through Jesus. However, that was a really in-depth study, and what it started to show is this, that 48% of Protestants believe that people can obtain eternal life by sincerely following other religions apart from Christianity. Do we really believe that disciples sharing the gospel and making disciples is the only way that people can come to a saving faith in who Jesus is? Do we think that people can find God through other religions as long as they're sincere about it? Do we think that people can receive the gospel apart from the church pursuing the Great Commission by seeking to truly make disciples of all nations? Do we believe what Jesus said in John 4.16, where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Another passage of scripture we could look at here is found in 1 John 5, 11 and 12. It says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. If we believe in the exclusivity of Christ and the need to share the gospel, verbally we will make disciples. Now the next reason he says we don't share the gospel is simply because we are afraid to. 
Some self-professing Christ followers do not share the gospel because they're afraid of rejection from their non-believing friends. We allow that to stand in the way. We have a fear that we may lose a relationship if we speak the name of Jesus, even to those that we love, to those that we love that we know do not know Jesus. Our fear keeps us from sharing. Now listen, we can take encouragement from the evidence that we find in Acts chapter 4 of how the Holy Spirit empowers and emboldens these early Christians, sending them out to boldly witness to those around them. Do we really believe that the Holy Spirit will empower our witness of the gospel? Do we believe in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and his ability to bring the spiritually dead back to life? Listen, if we believe these things, if we believe that the Holy Spirit can empower us and embolden us, we will share the gospel And we're going to touch more on this in just a couple of moments. But finally, the last reason we don't share the the gospel message is because so many of us, we feel just so sufficiently unequipped. So another reason people who claim the name of Jesus don't share the gospel is they feel that they lack training or they lack knowledge to be able to share with people. But first, we have to remember that our role in sharing Christ is that we are called to be witnesses. We're called to be witnesses who give testimony regarding Jesus and what he's done in our life. Virtually every believer, every, even every spiritually immature Christian can share what Jesus has done for them. You don't have to have any knowledge of Scripture to be able to say, Jesus saved me. This is what Jesus did for my life. However, However, if we're truly going to share, we do have to know God's word. How well do you know God's word this morning? Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We need to rely on scripture in order to make disciples. Regular intake of scripture in our own lives will help equip us for making disciples. Do we really believe that it's our role? Do we really believe it's our role to be witnesses to him? Do we really believe that the gospel of scripture can change lives? Because if we believe in the power of the gospel and we believe in the word of God, we will use scripture to make disciples. Now, I think it's important that we listen up None of these five reasons that we've just listed for not making disciples sufficiently excuses any of us from disobeying the Great Commission. If we take the sins of omission as seriously as we take sins of commission, our hearts should break over our failure to obey Jesus' command to make disciples. So I ask you, do you love God? Do you love people? Do you believe the gospel is essential for salvation? All right. Do you uh, trust the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? And do you believe in the power of the gospel and the word of God? Amen. Yes, I heard a lot of yeses. So if our answer is yes, will you make disciples? Amen. 
Listen, we need to remember that if we're feeling unequipped, if we're feeling unprepared and unqualified, if we're feeling afraid to share the gospel, there are also two major parts that we've not yet touched on of the Great Commission in this focus series. The first one is this. As Jesus delivered this command to his believers, he began with a very important statement, which we find in Matthew 20, verse 18. And he says this, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is one of the most critical, crucial statements that Jesus ever made. Here we have the foundation for the Great Commission. Jesus immediately fills his disciples with courage. It's almost like he's saying to them, stop being consumed with all your fear, with all your doubt, with all your hesitation. Look away from your inability and look away from your inadequacy and look toward me. Jesus is saying, look at my ability. Look at my adequacy. Look at my word. He's saying, look at my authority. Look at my authority. Jesus is saying that he has the power and the right to exert himself to bring about his commission. So we don't do it on our own strength. And we don't do it on our own privilege. And we don't do it on our own right. We go in the authority of the one who created the world. And, we, and then he came into the world. And then he redeemed the world. And now he rules over all the world and has all authority and rights to the world. We serve a king who has absolute authority over every square inch of creation. This authority extends not only to animals and plants and weather patterns, but also to each and every human being on this planet. Jesus has all authority, authority in heaven and on earth, authority to forgive us of our sins, authority to act as the peacemaker between us and the Father. Authority to send his Holy Spirit to be with us. Authority to open the hearts and the minds of those who we will witness to. Authority to reveal the Father to those people. Authority to give eternal life to them when they make that decision. And he also has the authority over death, which promises us that each and every one of us who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It promises us resurrection. Francis Chan has said, since all authority belongs to Jesus Christ, we are obligated to obey the Great Commission. He says, this command is clear, but listen to this. He says, but this is more than just a cold obedience. He says, the king who commands us to make disciples is the very same king who sacrificed his life and gave it freely for us. It's our pleasure then to serve the king. And we should find joy in submitting to his will and commands in our life. Furthermore, it should not be enough that we ourselves enjoy a healed relationship with our king. We should want every person on this earth to experience this great salvation. In his book, Follow Me, David Platt, he talks a lot about the authority of Christ and what it means to us as followers. He says, when followers of Christ share stories of how they became Christians, they often say something along the lines of, I decided to make Jesus my personal Lord and Savior. 
He says, initially and ultimately, of course, it's wonderful to hear brothers and sisters recount the moment when their hearts were opened to the uncomprehensibly passionate love of God, a love that now captivates them in an intensely personal relationship with Jesus. But then he says this. He goes on to say, at the same time, when I reflect on that particular statement, that I, that I decided to make Jesus my personal Lord and Savior, I can't help but wonder how much this idea represents some subtly yet significantly dangerous trends in contemporary Christianity. He says, on one level, this statement minimizes the inherent authority of Jesus. Surely none of us can decide to make him Lord. He says, Jesus is Lord regardless of what you and I decide. He says, the Bible is clear that on one day at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the question is not whether we make Jesus Lord. The real question is whether you and I will submit to his lordship and to his authority. What we ultimately need to understand is that the authority of Jesus is tied to the actuality of his resurrection. Think about it. If Jesus did not truly rise from the dead, then ultimately we don't have to worry about a single thing he said, including the words of the Great Commission. He would be just like every other religious teacher in the world trying to teach their truth and imparting their opinions for how to have a better life. In fact, it would probably be far worse than any other religion um, or religious teacher because he promised, he promised us that he would um, rise from the dead. And just think about if he didn't. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, then all of Christianity is a hoax. And as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, Christians would be the most pitiably stupid people on the planet. If that's the case, then we're free to pick and choose. We're free to pick and choose whatever words we want to take from Jesus that might actually be helpful to us. But on the other hand, if Jesus truly did rise from the dead, if he did what no one else in all of history has ever done or ever will do, which is conquer death, then we can't just accept what Jesus said. We must orient everything in our lives around what he said. This includes the Great Commission, excuse me. In a sermon that he spoke on the authority of Jesus, John Piper said this. He said, my aim in this sermon is that you would be filled. That you would be filled with the well-grounded amazement of the absolute authority and sovereignty of Jesus Christ over this world, and over his unstoppable mission to gather his sheep from all the unreached people of the world. And that many of you would hear the voice of God calling you irresistibly, joyfully, to leave your home and go to a place of greater need for the everlasting good of lost people and for the fame of Jesus Christ. So the courage to go the audacity to make disciples for Jesus, the authority that we have to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the charge that he's given us to teach obedience to everything that he has commanded. These are all based on the solid foundation that he has all authority on heaven and on earth, and it's been given to him 
by God the Father. So because of this authority, the authority of Jesus, we should be obedient to the Great Commission. But if it's in itself is not enough of a reason, we can take a look at the final words of the Great Commission that I hope will be a huge encouragement for those of us who still may be feeling a little bit unequipped or unqualified or afraid to share the gospel. These are found at the very end of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 20, where Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So here at the end of Matthew, we have this promise that he will always be with us to the very end of the age. And as the Gospel of Matthew opens, we have the words of the prophet that says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God has been with us from the beginning. God will be with us to the very end. The promises that we will live under the umbrella of God's presence, of Jesus' presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but have you noticed how people always seem to be more willing to do something if there's somebody that comes along to help? I think a lot of us, we're, we're not afraid to take on a challenge if we can get a friend to do it with us or to sign up to, to, to come along for the ride. Little kids, little kids are more apt to ride that scary ride at the fair or the amusement park if mom or dad ride with them. An employee, an employee is more willing to keep company policy on an issue if they feel like their employer has their back. And so it is with God with us. We are more willing to fulfill a task as his people if we know that God will be with us. And all along scripture, all throughout it, we see that God was with his people. If you remember what God told Joshua in Deuteronomy 31.6, he says, Be strong and be courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you and he will never forsake you. And Jesus tells us the same thing right here. He told his disciples back then and he tells us as his disciples now, surely I am with you always. There will never be a moment in our lives that Jesus himself won't be with us. As the time of Jesus' arrest and his death on the cross drew near, he wanted to make sure that his disciples understood this. He wanted to make it perfectly clear. He wanted to give peace to his, his uh, disciples' troubled hearts. And so he promised them the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 25 through 27, he says this, all, I have, all this I have spoken while with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father has sent in my, or will send in my name, will teach you things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So he's telling them the reason that they don't have to worry, that they don't have to be troubled, they don't have to be afraid. The reason that they can have peace is because he's promising them the Holy Spirit. To help us fully understand the importance of the Holy Spirit in, in the lives of the disciples and, and ultimately in our lives, I think we can look at the lives of the disciples. I think we can look at their lives more specifically. I think we can look at the lives of the disciples before Jesus ascends into heaven 
And we can look at the lives of the disciples after Jesus ascends into heaven. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples were this group of guys that messed up all the time. These men who were faithfully walking with Jesus each and every day messed up. John and James continually argued about who was the greatest. Jesus constantly seemed to be calling out this group of guys for their lack of faith. After his death, the disciples, they went into hiding because they were afraid for their lives. We learned that one of his closest companions not only denied him once or twice, but denied him three times. Even after Jesus' resurrection, where people were starting to see him and starting to claim that Jesus was alive, Thomas, Thomas still doubted. He doubted to the point where he said, I need to see the nail marks on Jesus' hands. I need to see the hole in his side where he was stabbed with that spear. And so when the Messiah appears before Thomas, he says, Thomas, go ahead. If this is what it's going to take for you to believe, go ahead. Put your fingers in the nail marks. Take your hand and feel my side. But then he said, Thomas, stop doubting. Stop doubting and believe me. These disciples could not get it together. We've been reading from Matthew chapter 28 every week for five weeks. We've started with verse 18. But when we look at verse 16, we find that even after everything, even in this moment, right before Jesus ascends, that the disciples still doubted. We read starting in 16, then the 11 disciples, okay, 11, obviously Judas was, was not around anymore says, they went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. So even through all of this, these men who had been with him each and every day for three and a half years, some of them still doubted. How much harder is it for us? We haven't walked with him physically in person but I want you to know because of where we're at, where we're living in this timeline, it should not be that difficult. Because what we see, even with the disciples, is this. Before Jesus ascended, they couldn't seem to get anything right. But after Jesus ascended, when his promised Holy Spirit comes, something changes. And this is what we need to understand. In the book of Acts, we get a glimpse of this account, this account of what we see here. Okay, this is what we've been looking at in Matthew. Acts 1, 8, 9 gives us the detail here, and it says this, and these are Jesus' words. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So kind of another cool account of Jesus ascending up into heaven. And then we get to Acts chapter 2. And everything, I mean everything, changes. It says this, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So from this moment on, 
we see that the disciples are completely sold out. They're completely faithful to the commands of the Lord. We see that they did everything, everything without fear or without hesitation. There was no fear of persecution or no fear of jail or even death because they were filled, it says, with the power of the Holy Spirit. And as an example, in Acts 4, which I briefly touched on earlier, we see that Peter and John, they they were arrested. They were arrested for proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, if you were with us last week, this is a different account than what we read in Acts chapter 5. This account precedes that one, but what we see is this. The rulers, elders, and teachers of the law had Peter and John, or John and Peter, brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit tells them it is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, when we get to Acts um, chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, Peter is preaching to them, and he says this, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they, speaking of the elders and the teachers of the law, when they saw the courage, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note of these men who had been with Jesus. We see from this account that being filled with the Holy Spirit, it filled Peter and John with courage. Not only that, consistently in the book of Acts, the consciousness of the presence of Jesus is attended by the realization of the presence of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one making real to the disciples the personal presence of the Lord. To be filled with the Spirit also recognize a willingness to yield on the part of the disciples to the purposes of the Lord. This term especially acknowledges the availability of the disciples to the Holy Spirit to be his instruments for carrying out the Lord's mission on the earth to evangelize all of mankind. So just like Jesus filled his disciples with the power in his presence to accomplish his purposes in the first century, Jesus has filled every one of his disciples today with his power and his presence to accomplish his purpose here in the 21st century. We have the same power living in us that the disciples had living in them 2,000 years ago. So this is the way we sustain ourselves in this enormously difficult and glorious task of going and making disciples and preaching the gospel to all the nations and calling people to be obedient in baptism and teaching people in such a way that they actually obey Jesus The way that we are sustained is that, is that we never forget that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus, and that he has given us his spirit to be with us to the very end. So as we wrap up this focus series, let's make sure our focus is clear. The will of God is clear. It's clear from cover to cover in scripture From beginning to end, God wills for all his people to hear, receive, embrace, and respond to the gospel of his grace for the sake of his glory 
all over the globe. God's will is for us to make disciples. To make disciples of all nations. Once again, as we wrap up this morning, I want to share a final story. In January of 2007, it says, Cameron Hollipeter, who was 19 at the time, suffered a seizure while waiting for the train in the New York City subway station. As his body convulsed out of control, the young man stumbled down the platform and onto one of the tracks, directly in the path of an inbound train. Wesley Autry, who was a 50-year-old construction worker, he'd been standing along the platform with his two daughters when he saw Halipeter fall. And he jumped onto the tracks and he grabbed this young man with only seconds to spare. He rolled the two of them into the drainage trough between the two tracks. An instant later, the train cars thundered over the top of both of them. But amazingly, neither man was injured. In the ensuing days, Autry was rewarded handsomely for his bravery. Mayor Michael Bloomberg presented him with the city's highest award for civic achievement, calling him a man who makes us all proud to be New Yorkers. He was given $10,000 from Donald Trump, a trip to Disney World, and a year's supply of Metro cards from the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. His boss even gave him a hero sandwich. Autry was modest about his new status as the hero of Harlem. He said, I just did it because I saw someone in distress. Someone needed help. This morning, I think it's important to understand that we live in a world where people are spiritually distressed. We live in a world where people need help. We live in a world where people need Jesus. And we have that lifeline to throw them. That's why Jesus has called us to take the Great Commission. Romans 10, 14 and 15, it says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This morning, I want you to understand something. We've all been sent. Jesus Christ himself, our Lord and Savior, has called us to go. With his very final command, he said to us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, excuse me, and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Would you pray with me? Dear only Father God, we thank you for this word. Father, we thank you for your authority in our lives. And God, that you go before us and the authority that you have, Father, opens hearts and minds to be receptive to your word. God, your authority says that you're the one who does the work. God, you are the one who opens hearts. You're the one who leads people to decision. But God, you've called us to be a part of that. You've called us to go and to share this good news. So Father, that's our prayers. We leave here this morning and know that we don't have to be afraid. Know that we don't have to feel unequipped or unprepared. God, we know that your spirit is with us. 
You've promised to be with us to the very end. You're always with us, God. And God, you empower us, you embolden us, your spirit does this. So Father, we can be obedient to this command. And that's our prayer for each and every one of us this morning. Through the name of your son, Jesus, amen.